0: Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to Modern Money Donuts. Uh, My name's Stephen Hale, I'm uh, adjunct associate professor at Torrens University here in South Australia. And I'm here with uh, my colleague, Gabrielle Bond and another guest who Gabrielle's gonna introduce.
0: Hi everyone, uh, my name is Gabrielle Bond. I'm an activist and organizer. I'm with the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group, and also I'm a director at Modern Money Lab. And we're here today. Thank you for so much for joining us, Dirk. Um, Dr Dirk Entz is an adjunct lecturer at the magdeburg Stendhal University of Applied Scientists. And he's speaker of the board of the Pufendorf Society for Political Economy and author of Modern Monetary Theory and European Macroeconomics, among much else. Um, Dirk's been very kind kind to allow us to list him as an adjunct lecturer at Modern Money Lab as well. And the plan is for Dirk to write and teach a subject on our new Torrens University graduate program next year.
2: Thanks very much for coming along. Very excited to be here. Thank you for the introduction.
0: So first question for you, Um, the USA and Australia are monetary unions of states as is the Eurozone but they don't work in the same way. Um, How do they differ and why does this matter?
2: Well I think the main difference between Australia and the Eurozone is that Australia has a federal government whereas in the Eurozone we, we only have the European Commission which is the European Union body and not specific to the Eurozone. So we have a central bank in many countries Um, But we have no federal government that, for example, like in in, uh, Australia, could spend as much money as as it wants to. I mean, maybe there are fiscal rules. um, um, But technically, at least uh, the federal government in Australia can spend as much money as it wants to. And and we don't have. So that is Hmm. the biggest difference, I would say. Um, So at least in in practice, um, we have these kind of rules, the deficit rules. So the national governments of the Eurozone, they, they also can spend money via their national central banks. So, whereas you have the Australian central bank, we have the European central bank, and then we have 90 national central banks and all of them together form our central bank. It's a little bit yeah, complicated. Yeah, much more
0: complicated.
2: Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's called the Euro system this And that means that the national governments, um, they they pay their bills by using their own national central banks. But if they spend more than 3%, more than they take back in taxes, um, then the European Commission can at least theoretically punish them for, for what we call an excessive deficit. And these rules were at the start of the European Union, of Europe, the Eurozone, they, these rules were enforced. Um, but mm-hmm. in 2019, so before the pandemic, we had 10 countries which were uh, in excessive deficits, meaning public deficits. Mm-hmm. And only one of them was punished. So only Romania was punished in two thousand nineteen for an excessive deficit. So we we have changed the rules a little bit already, um, by not enforcing them even before the pandemic. And then of course it's more or less very similar that um that the Australian government is more or less like the German government or the Greek government even so so they can spend whatever they want. Um, and there's there's political rules that might be binding or might not be binding, but it's mm-hmm. not so far from Australia then.
1: So the yeah, essential difference really is that um, Australia is one government with one central bank, uh, which is the case for um, really most countries around the world across monetary history and outside the Eurozone, most countries around the world uh, today. And uh, if our federal government passes a budget through our parliament, then it's able to fund its spending. We have a slightly different system to the US and Canada and other other countries in terms of ensuring that the dollars are always available for the federal government to spend. But all of those countries uh, have uh, some kind of system to ensure that once there is political authorization for spending to go ahead, then the, the funds are, are, are always available whereas in the in the eurozone it's it's different it's especially mm-hmm. different if you're one of the smaller economies and post gfc one of the southern european economies where you don't have the unquestioned backing of a central bank to ensure that you can always um, fund fund your spending that that's basically what i took from from your explanation there dirk
2: yeah but it's it's politically complicated okay so yeah. The the Eurozone was planned in a way that we said the financial market should punish the national governments. So Mm. those governments which overspend, having high deficits, should be punished through higher interest rates.
3: Mm.
2: In the Eurozone we discovered the hard way (laughs) that if the central bank does not buy up government bonds and supports the national governments, then of course something can happen like what happened to Greece in 2014 that the Greek government ran out of money. It could not yeah. sell more government bonds and that meant that the central bank was unwilling to pay its bills mm-hmm. because that is it's how it connects so in in a way the eurozone setup is, is more mmt like than than anywhere else i think so if the mm-hmm. german government spends for example the bundesbank our central bank here in germany they just pay the bills of the government and then mm-hmm. the account of the government is a negative territory and they have to fill up fill it up with tax revenues mm-hmm. and also with bond issuance revenues Um, But it's not like in the U.S., for example, where the government first needs to issue bonds, then it spends. So the German central bank allows the German federal government to spend first and then fill up the account. Um, So everything everything that, or any, no, wait a sec. Um, The only thing that matters, let me put it like this, is whether you find a buyer for your government bonds. Mm, through its purchases of government bonds can make sure that all the banks who are buying the government bonds from from the national countries um, that they can always expect to have a buyer of last resort. So if the ECB says yes, we have lots of government bonds um, then there's no question about solvency and liquidity of national governments including Greece Um, Mm. but if they don't do this like they did in in the euro crisis then of course Mm. the Greek government can actually run out of money and in terms of, of the legal system, the monetary system, of, of course, is based on laws. So what does the ECB say? The ECB says, well, um, the, the spreads, so the, inters- the, the bond price differences, which uh, we have between those national bonds, like German government bonds, Greek government bonds, they have different bond prices because investors expect maybe that some countries are not doing very well in terms of, of I don't know, efficient government spending, whatever the mm. investors think about. Um, yeah. So the ECB says there are certain spreads and they reflect macroeconomic differences in those countries. Um, but it's, if the spreads get get out of hand, then we are there to ensure that they, they come back to normal more or less. So this means that the ECB, while it has admitted that these spreads are a, are a feature, not a bug, the mm-hmm. ECB has also now, at least, at least by by verbal means, uh, expressed its will to, to make sure that National governments will never run out of money again, but of course it's not very reliable. Okay, so if you are a small country like Greece, I mean, in the pandemic, of course, the Greek government debt-to-GDP ratio it topped 200%. Okay, mm. so there was a huge public debt, and nothing happened because the ECB was supportive. Um, right. And the ECB can support because it it can take its own decisions. It's not a it, it's not a government-run body. So the the German Chancellor, for example, has no power to intervene. Um, so if the ECB says that it will make sure that the national governments can spend, um, then this is a new situation. So we have in a way a Eurozone 2.0. Wow! Yeah. So,
0: That's so pretty much our second question. But yeah, go ahead, Stephen.
1: Well, it it does. i have just uh, again to, um, just from from memory, what Dirk is reminding me of there is that um, uh, as the Eurozone was originally set up, there was no guarantee that the European Central Bank would support any government initially. uh, They they, uh, certainly are not supposed to lend to governments, but also uh, it it was uh, extremely limited, the conditions under which they were to buy government bonds in the secondhand market uh, as as well. Um, That changed after the global financial crisis because had it not changed the whole Eurozone uh, would have would have crashed. Um, uh, the 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 fact that this was likely to happen, as I know Dirk knows because I've, I've read him referring to this elsewhere, was uh, was predicted by one of the um, favorite uncles of modern monetary theory, Wynne Godley, mm-hmm. almost as soon as the rules for the eurozone and the European Central Bank were first agreed on in the in the early 1990s. But even after the GFC, once the European Central Bank stood behind national governments, this was conditional. And it was conditional on governments uh, um, uh, obeying uh, what were originally convergence criteria and then ended up being called the stability and growth pact. And that's what Dirk was referring to when he talked about the 3% rule, Yeah. Governments right. their deficits below 3% of, uh, of, of GDP, uh, and um, that meant that governments of countries like Greece, but not just Greece, the other southern European countries as well, had some default risk associated with their bonds without the guaranteed backing of a central bank. So unlike the US or Australia, even though they were borrowing in the currency they used, what you might mm. regard as a national currency, Spain, Portugal, uh, Ireland, Italy, but especially Greece um, were seen as being at risk Mm. of not paying back their debt, not paying interest and not repaying what they borrowed from bondholders. And unfortunately, when that becomes believed by the investment community, then as Dirk said, he talked about spreads increasing. That means the interest rates these governments have to pay start Taking off and going into the stratosphere, so that it becomes yeah. a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And without without the European Central Bank and the other European governments coming along and and uh, uh, preventing this happening, then Greece would have defaulted, perhaps mm. Spain, Portugal, perhaps other countries too, and yeah. perhaps there would be no eurozone now. So that no. that's where um, you said we dealt Dirk had D- 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 dealt with this, which was this crisis happened after the global financial crisis Mm. but actually we have had what has in some ways been a a worse crisis happening in the last couple of years and we haven't seen the same uh situation where the eurozone has appeared to be on the brink where governments like the greek government have been at risk of default um why is that Dirk?
2: yeah well the I think the European policymakers understood that austerity policies were not a good idea. So this idea of trying to reduce the deficit by by cutting government spending, which the Eurozone did extensively in the 2010s, which you just refer to, especially in Greece, Mm -hmm. they cut public salaries by 20%, they they cut government spending. And all of this was deflationary, it created mass unemployment, and it was Mm -hmm. really bad. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of clear that the rules didn't work. The fiscal rule so the three percent rule the stability and growth pact is where this stability this deficit rule is enshrined um mm. they they inserted in the early 2000s uh, sorry sorry the early 2010s they inserted uh, a general escape clause in the stability and growth pact which was not there mm. before so they said well next time we move into a crisis um let's have the option here that we would that we kind of can turn off these deficit limits if we need mm. to okay so of course, it was it was a bad time in the 2010s to to live in Spain, Portugal, and Greece because the troika, which was the ECB, the European Commission, and the IMF, they went into those countries and said, look, if you want to have some money, you need to reform. And of mm. course, there were neoliberal reforms that they that they did. And they said, well, it will hurt in the short term, but the Greeks will prosper in the 2020s, for example, in the long term. And or of in course, the 2060s maybe. <laughs> yeah. well, that kind okay so so greece is still the poor man of of the eurozone Mm. and what they promised in terms of efficient markets and liberalized markets and flexible workers and so on all of that it doesn't it doesn't help and it was often the disused wages to reduce demand for companies so the companies are complaining because profits are low so i think that European policymakers of the European public—they have learned that that the 2010s the response to the global financial crisis was a disaster, because mm. other countries that did not look at the deficit, like the U.S., they just said, "Well, okay, the deficit will take care of itself. We just increase government spending, uh, and then the economy—the economy will bounce back, um, mm. and then we have a smaller deficit, um, mm. whatever." It be. Um, so that seemed to be the right path, and. In 2020, in March, the, um, the ECB said we will have a, a public bond purchase program, which was called the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program. And by this, we ensure that all the national governments can sell all the government bonds they need to sell in order to, to fill up their accounts with their central banks so that they, they, would, they would spend for them, that they, they would have a green light. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Stability and Growth Pact was, um, was deactivated. So the General mm-hmm. Escape Clause, was activated in 2020 in April by the European Commission after the European Council I think proposed to do this and that meant that deficit limits were off and also the, the fiscal fiscal stuff that was also there was also off also the national debt breaks were were deactivated and that meant that, that this the monetary sovereignty returned to to all the countries of the eurozone okay so yeah. from 2020 onwards it was clear that until the end of this year The debt limits were off. So what normally stopped a country from spending more was um, the problem that they could not sell any more bonds because the investors Mm -hmm. might panic. There's no problem now, the ECB is buying lots of bonds. And also you would stop spending at some point because you were afraid of the 3% public deficit limit. But now you can breach that too. So there's nothing that stops the Eurozone governments to do this. And and guess what happened? the unemployment rate is at, a, at an historical low right now. Mm-hmm. OK, so it was never below 7 percent for, for about 20 years that we have the euro now. It was never mm-hmm. below 7 percent, which is a very high unemployment rate. And now it's mm-hmm. six point something. OK, so turning off fiscal deficit limits le- leads us towards full employment. And of course, uh, it, it had to happen. <laughs> That's what held us back. Um, so I think that policymakers have now understood quite clearly uh, that the deficit limits are harmful for the European economy.
3: And
2: we now have the war in Ukraine, so they will probably um, also uh, say for next year that the Stability and Growth Pact will be deactivated.
3: Mm-hmm. So this has
2: become a new normal that the monetary sovereignty is back with with those nation states, which, of course, is not something that we planned for. That's not mm-hmm. how the euro was designed. that's That is right now the only possible way the euro can work.
0: So, I remember Fidel, uh Kabub was talking in one lecture about uh, countries being on a spectrum of monetary sovereignty. And so, do you think that, in general, uh, most countries are moving towards more monetary sovereignty?
2: Well, I mean, in the Eurozone, the way that we have designed those institutions, um, we are moving from very little monetary sovereignty now I mean, right now, and and since March, no, since April 2020, we have full monetary sovereignty. Okay, there's Mm. nothing really, nothing that would stop the national governments. Of course, Mm. you can turn on monetary sovereignty, uh, you can turn off monetary sovereignty when you reintroduce the stability and growth pact. But there's already now um, a debate about how to reform the fiscal rules of the Eurozone. It was Mm. to be decided this year, but because of the war in Ukraine, it will be decided next year, Mm. I guess. Um, yeah. So so there is talk, and on this kind of spectrum, we're definitely moving towards more monetary sovereignty. But of course, it's also a political question. So mm-hmm. there's lots of people who want to have a United States of Europe. So yeah. they are saying, well, the European Commission should be allowed to go into debt to issue also their currency by having the ECB pay their bills. Mm-hmm. So we had something which we called next generation EU, um, mm-hmm. which was, I think, roughly a couple of hundred billion euros extra partly in loans mm-hmm. to national governments but partly also as as a gift more or less um so this would allow then the the you know, uh, the european or the european union to become more like australia like like a proper european nation state if you want with, with federal yeah. institutions yeah. and all of this so in the background we have this political question what do we want to do with europe
3: yeah and the yeah.
2: solution right now is to give monetary sovereignty back to the nation states because we cannot have a federal government in, in Brussels uh, that quickly. We mm-hmm. would have to reform a lot of institutions to get there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, all of this is in flux and it's it's in the end, the political, it's a political sit- situation that we have here. And mm-hmm. the economic situation often adjusts to what is politically possible, which is why the Eurozone and its institutional framework is so disappointing in a way. Yeah. It's easy to yeah. criticize it and it's easy to see the flaws, Um, But you need political majorities um, to move ahead and and to change it.
0: Well, I think we dodged a bullet in France with um, Marine Le Pen missing out on the presidency, which is um, a good thing.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and that's exactly the point that that I try to stress. It's the high unemployment rates which are killing the the European politics. Okay, so Mm -hmm. because we have some kind of vacuum. I mean, if if you're unemployed in Australia and, and you want to vote we will increase employment and we make sure that people want to work and can work, will find a job. Let's have mm-hmm. a job guarantee, for instance. Yep. We can't have that in Europe because on the national level, the, the parties will say, sorry, we cannot increase government spending because of the deficit limits. So mm. our hands are, are tied behind our backs. We can yeah. do anything. I mean, we can we can pretend that we will, but it's, it's clearly, yeah. that's clearly not possible. And Brussels will say, so during the European elections, was it the the whole budget of the European Commission is roughly 1% of European GDP. Hmm. They will say we can't do anything because we are not allowed to deficit spend. Okay, hmm. So technically, we get tax revenues and that's our budget.
0: Yes. So if yeah. you're
2: unemployed and angry in Europe, what do you do politically? Um, and that's why the, yeah,
0: that's why the, yeah, the far the right has that. The
2: political deal. Has, has has, I mean, the, the, the far right monopolized kind of these frustrated people mm. and, and their anger. And and that's that's a bad thing.
1: It's a very complicated set of uh, questions, uh, that that one, isn't it? Um, How uh, it's very difficult to see uh, at least some of the member countries of the Eurozone ever opting for a a genuinely federal government, but uh, it's (laughs) difficult to know what to do.
2: Yeah, we are kind of stuck. In terms of, I, I like this metaphor that in, in, in the Eurozone, we started riding our horse into a river and then we were in the middle. We kind of noticed that the river is too deep. Okay. So now what do we do? Do we turn back and say, let's go back to national currencies mm. or do we try to teach the horse to swim? Mm.
3: And say, okay,
2: yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty, but let's try to go ahead. And of course I mean these kind of questions like like whether to have a federal European nation state or not I mean i I would like to think as a democratic citizen um, or as a citizen in the democracy I would like to say let's have a public debate and and mm. fix it by public debate but, mm. but historically this is now not how it's done yeah. um, so it's, it's backroom politics it and
0: time, too like the changes that we need um we we almost, we don't have time to kind of talk to everybody in order to act on climate change. Yeah. Um, I, I struggle with that a lot because there's lots of people here who are very interested in the sort of participatory democracy, citizens' assemblies model. Um, and it's pro- to be fair, it's probably better than what we've currently got, but um, do we have time? No, probably not. Anyway, yeah, that's another question.
2: It's it's then that you start acting in terms of emergency laws. So mm-hmm. so you have a crisis like mm-hmm. the pandemic. You have a crisis like the Ukraine war, and then you just say, okay, I react to the crisis. Um, and it's a bit a little bit like like the book uh, the shock therapy, um,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, where the um, author writes that that you have to react to shocks, and this is how you you legitimize your your decisions. And mm-hmm. for example, the euro. There was always talk about countries exiting the euro and maybe somehow dissolving the currency union with what happened in Ukraine. This is this is not a big debate anymore for the last for the rest of the decade. Um, mm-hmm. So because because there's a, the, the Russian war on Ukraine has unified the rest of the Europeans,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: it would be it would not be politically possible to say let's dissolve the euro now, the euro now if you are a political party, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. people want more Europe, they want solidarity, they want to stand together. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that means that oddly enough, but, but one of the unintended consequences of this war in Russia is that, that the euro will be much more stable than, politically than we thought it would be. And there's mm. much more momentum for reform right now. So I <laughs> think that the next fiscal framework that we get in the eurozone, um, it probably, it's not going to be perfect, uh, but I think it will be much more better and we will have much lower unemployment rates in, in the future with with whatever mm. we get. And,
1: well, that, uh,
2: that,
1: that, that would be uh, a... Uh, I don't like to say it would be good news because what's happening in the Ukraine is absolutely dreadful. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. It, it would at least be something. Uh, it would be a positive outcome anyway, and in a way, moving towards. I, I remember Warren Mosler talking years ago about instead of having a three percent limit on on uh, deficit spending, sometimes you need an eight percent limit. Yeah. Or you need much more flexibility to make the system work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah
2: yeah it's moving yeah. in that direction yeah so one thing to to turn off these deficit limits completely and say we have instead employment targets for example so, mm-hmm. so there's
3: there's
2: there's now room for these kind of debates and these kind of employment targets are floated as an idea which again it's it's progress so so in terms of, of politics again um we're moving ahead and mmt is becoming more mainstream with these kind of ideas that you should target full employment and price stability um, and not only exclusively price stability, as the ECB is doing now.
1: So, absolutely, they should have listened to uh, Wynne Godley in the first place when designing the eurozone. And uh, it would be good to listen to MMT economists like uh, like Dirk uh, when thinking about which direction to go in in the future, whether it is for a federal Europe or whether it's a Europe of nation states, but with much greater flexibility as far yeah. as fiscal policy and the support of the ECB is concerned. Yeah. Gabrielle, was... you... sorry. Yeah,
0: I, I just wanted to say um, we we did have some slides of a paper that you've written, Dirk. Um,
1: That's it, the that theory. would be great, cool. since you mentioned uh, MMT. Um, le- now, you published a paper earlier this year, Dirk, uh, at, um, you can see a screenshot <laughs> that I took uh, on the slides, called uh, Modern Monetary Theory, The Right Compass for Decision Making, in a journal called InterEconomics. Uh, what motivated you to write this paper?
2: Well, there were two authors affiliated with the Banque de France, uh, the French central bank, and they wrote a paper which was called, I think it was Modern Monetary Theory, the wrong compass for decision making, um, <laughs> something along those lines. Oh. Um, oh, and I, I thought that it's great that central bankers do engage with MMT and they, they look at the arguments and they, they try to to they can use it. For, for their own decisions. So I mean, it's it's really the right kind of framing. So is MMT a good compass for for decision making? That's that's really a very good question. Um, but the problem is that they have read parts of MMT literature, like some essentials. They also read a paper that I wrote about um, Georg Friedrich Knapp, the the charter list economist mm-hmm. from uh, from the nineteenth century and early twentieth century. But they were kind of they were kind of lost in the details. And they created this table where they said, "Okay, this is what MMT says and this is what we say or what the mainstream says. Yeah, there it is. And um, I think apart from there was one one row where they got it right. um, But there were many rows where it was not correct, or at least it is debatable whether it was correct in the framing that they used with those mainstream uh, words. So I said um, it's a nice idea to challenge them and say, look. Um, let me try to put it straight. So this is what we think MMT is. And, and maybe we can engage in a discussion about how the government of France actually spends so that we can discuss something positive. So let's not get stuck with the details about chartalism and where, uh, where MMT is, is coming from and, and which kind of, of ideas it's building on. Um, that's all history of economic thought and it's interesting for its own sake. But if we are interested in whether MMT can be Used by central banks and policymakers as a compass, then we should discuss something more practical. And yeah, that was the outcome. This kind of paper that I published, I had lots of help, so I would also like to thank Pavlina Geneva for for her help in in commenting on that paper. So
1: these two economists, they were from the Bank Bank of France, I think.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we put uh, up the first half of Table One. Uh, the, the, uh, there's uh, the, there's loads of things we could discuss from. Uh, Dirk's paper. Um, actually, one or two things he he uh, um, referred to a little bit earlier on in our discussion. For example, he, dis- he in the paper he talks about using balance sheets, how uh, how the German government um, spends and how how it interacts with uh, Germany's central bank, which is a member of the European system of central banks. But I uh, I just wanted to take a look at this table because in this table. Um, we have uh, or you've listed a variety of issues in macroeconomics uh, with the, the mainstream or neoclassical view with uh, Drummits and Pfister's uh, interpretation of what they think modern monetary theory has to say about these issues. And then uh, it says original MMT. We might perhaps mm. say genuine MMT yeah. in the right hand uh, column there. And I thought maybe uh, if we've got a few minutes, we could have a look at some of these. And, and perhaps you could just uh, explain the difference between their interpretation of modern monetary theory and and what you've written in the right hand column. So the yeah. first one, for example, government yeah. spending is financed by we're all familiar with the mainstream view, mm. taxes pay yeah. for government spending. Yeah. Um, drum it and fister they say issuing currency according to mmt finances government spending um you say it's not finance what do you mean by that dirk
2: well i think it's the question here is how do you how do you define the word finance um yeah. you can just be sloppy and say well finance means to be paid for okay so mm-hmm. then it would be technically correct, technically correct to say that MMT says that you are financing government expenditure by issuing currency, um, mm-hmm. Stephanie Kelton often puts it like this, she doesn't, mm. um, at least in Germany the word finance is very specific, so that means you have to have some kind of income before you you spend some kind of, of money, okay, yeah. so that means you, you need money in order to spend money, and then of course MMT says that the central bank, which is making the payments for the government, it's a currency issuer, Mm-hmm. And as currency issuer, you can only spend, but you cannot finance. Okay, there's no there's no technical possibility to to finance. Um, if you go back to Virginia, for example, in the in the 18th century, they had their own paper currency. Okay, mm-hmm. so it was not able for them to to finance that. They didn't they didn't need tax revenues, which is the mainstream view, and they they even could not use tax revenues for financing. Okay, so
3: yeah. It, yeah.
2: whether you are using new paper currency, or you kind of recycle paper currency, it's a question of, of sustainable resource use, but no, it's not a question about whether you are able to spend or not, okay? Yes. So that's yes. why I said in the MMT view, the currency issuer does not does not finance at all, it just spends. So the, the central bank, it, and now we are talking about modern Germany, so if the German federal government spends, the German central bank will mark up the account of the receiving bank using its computer system. Um, those numbers are not coming from anywhere. So if you if you are using finance in that kind of of sense with this kind of definition, um, you would not believe that the government can finance anything at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very very interesting. I I, I sometimes I get rather sloppily say that it's financed when you pass a, a, a spending bill through Parliament, but uh, that's mm-hmm. just I, I guess um, let me uh, just elaborate things right. Yeah, the interesting thing is, is to have these discussions. I think people understand much better um, if uh, if somebody says government spend by issuing currency or government spending is not financed. Technically, um, yes, it's not financed. The government doesn't need to um, raise taxes before it can spend or borrow before it can spend. Mm-hmm. And the political authorization bit feeds into the, the second row here public debt sustainability uh, can be an issue uh, investors can go on bond strike governments can't raise money they can't finance their spending that's the mainstream view or at least i don't know whether um, they write these things down anymore but it's not that many years before that's the that was the since that was the typical thing which uh, mainstream economists wrote about the risk in their view of uh, of the national debt increasing over time um Drummits and Pfister, it cannot be an issue. You say uh, and again I think this is the right way of putting it, but uh, better if you explain it than me, it's a political issue if debt is in your own currency. Yeah. What, what does that so,
2: mean? I mean if I think Drummits and Fister probably read um American MMT articles and books and mm-hmm. um there of course Randy Rayo, for example, often says this that the government cannot run out of, of money, so Public debt sustainability is not an issue, but if if he would if you read, would read his his stuff about the eurozone, there of course he would say, well, in the eurozone it depends. But we kind of normally think that it's one country, one currency, and all the central banks are supporting the governments, also because the government can change the laws, so they can force by changing the law, we can force the central bank to support the government and make sure that the government can spend. So in the eurozone, you can clearly see it's a political issue. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Um, It's it's really odd that you have uh, 19 countries which which share a currency. Um, Let me also point out that we also have a country which has two currencies, which is China. They Mm -hmm. have the renminbi and also the Hong Kong dollar. So so there's Mm -hmm. also this kind of arrangement. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would rather say that it's still national currencies. So I would still say that Germany is issuing its own currency. It's called the euro. And other currencies or other countries can also issue this currency. Okay, but every euro that is that is spent by the German government is created by the German central bank. So it's not that the German federal government is spending a currency it does not it does not have, for example, it, it cannot create. So the mm-hmm. Bundesbank can create as many euros as it wants to, as it is allowed to legally. Uh, Christine mm-hmm. Lagarde, the the ECB president, um, she said in November 2020 that the ECB And the national central banks, as the sole issuers of euro, can create any uh, amount of liquidity needed. Okay, so we have that on record. Um, So it's only a political issue. So maybe the Bundesbank at one point will say, look, we we can still create money, but we cannot pay the bills for the German federal government because their account is negative and -hmm. they're not able to bring it back to zero because mm-hmm. they cannot sell government bonds and tax revenues are not enough to, to bring it back to zero. And if, if that is the case, then you have a red light at the central bank. So they cannot mark up the account of banks um, if the government of Germany tells them to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means it's a political issue and it's the, the monetary constitution in a way that that that, that fixes this. Um, but in this case, the ECB is able to to fix this issue because they can create these kind of bond purchase programs on the secondary market and thus ensure that that you will always find a buyer for German government bonds or Greek government bonds and it's it's nevertheless it's a political decision made by the ECB board um and it's kind of strange because it's it's not a democratic institution but but they have all the power regarding this question in the eurozone that think, that, that go on Gabby.
0: Uh, I was just going to ask do you think um, the kind of average person in the street would actually understand this, or is it? Uh, are they still sort of um, uh, operating under the, the deficit myth?
2: Let me think about this for a while. No, they don't understand. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they are still uh, modest. The whole debate is still framed um, in terms of of this mainstream idea. Mm. Um, but I just um, I just published a new book in German. Um, It was published with uh, Springer in February and uh, it has more than three and a half thousand downloads inside the first roughly two months.
1: Um, Any chance for a translation, Dirk, for those of us who don't speak German?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I hope that Springer will will do it. They have the English translation rights. Um, I hope that if I sell, maybe if I sell 10,000 copies this year uh, in German, maybe they're willing to to translate it. Um, I have other language rights so for those who speak other non-English languages. Um, maybe there's hope that the translation will be coming out soon.
1: Okay, that's great. I was just I've just gone on to the third slide because we're not going to keep dirt all night. But, um yeah. uh, actually the, the some of what we've just been talking about uh is related to um the other issues which he covers in this table, which yeah. are um he brilliantly covers in the article. This is one of my fav, fav- favourite Uh, MMT papers in recent years, which is which is why I wanted to highlight it now. Um, People can see the link, um, at least the address of the link, which is on the screen at the moment, or you really you can just uh, uh, do a, a Google search for Dirk Ent's name and modern monetary theory, the right compass for decision making, and you'll find this paper. I strongly advise you to to read it. It's fascinating. And Dirk's discussion of table one, the contents of table mm. one, as much as uh, uh, the, the, the remaining content of the paper is an education in itself. But yes. I, I, I think really. we'll leave the discussion there or we'll keep Dirk okay. all day and we'll keep us yes. all night. This is a- absolutely fascinating, though. Uh, and I'd just like to thank Dirk for his work. You, you are, uh, I often think, playing a lonely furrow uh, you're the leading um, European modern monetary theory economist. Yeah, um, you're, right. As far as Germany is concerned, it sometimes seems to me like you're the only um, modern monetary theory economist. Or do I have the wrong impression? No, I,
2: I've had one student, Maurice Hufgen, who also published a book in German about modern monetary theory, and he, ah, he yes, worked yes. as a research assistant in the German parliament. Um, so we are also getting this stuff into politics through him, and he has a very yeah. successful blog uh, and, and oh, podcast, like you do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm very happy to be on the show. So thanks for. for well, I need it. you to
1: get a lot more famous, Dirk, uh, <laughs> and mean, we need him to get a lot more famous as well, because uh, that's why most people don't understand these issues, Gabriel. There are. Mm-hmm. 10,000 of them for every one of us, yeah, yeah, it seems I sometimes it. when it comes to the conversation, and we get drowned yeah. out. Very we're,
0: we're very excited that Dirk is going to be part of our Modern Money Lab and Torrens University collaborative venture, which is, you know, gathering steam. We're, we're due to launch uh, to have applications open, formal applications open from mid-July. And we will be launching our two foundation topics in September, which uh, Stephen and our friend Phil Lorne are working on as we speak. And uh, if you want to find out more about those postgraduate courses, uh, go to our website, which is www.modernmoneylab.org.au and you'll find our courses right on the homepage and there's also a whole page devoted to them as well.
1: And next week, we are going to talk to someone we've been promising people we'd be talking to for weeks now. But finally, uh, um, <laughs> I, I think totally. this going down, who is actually the, the chair of Modern Money Lab and mm-hmm. one of the most prominent fund managers in in Australia, uh, Con Arkis. So it will be great to talk to, to Con. Yeah. Um, but I Terrific. think it only... It only remains for us to thank Dirk again very much for talking to us. It's been fascinating, Dirk. Thanks so much for talking to us today. And uh, to say Joe Firestone is on after us yep. as usual and we'll see everybody next week. Yeah. Oh, Thanks. hang on, we, we, we should, uh, I think there's something else we should do before we finish. Dirk, is there anything uh, that you would like to bring to people's attention that you're working on later this year yourself?
2: Um, well, I mean, I will be part of the Levy Institute Summer Seminar this year. Um, oh, yes. That is a yes. great event. Um, Excellent. So. I, saw,
1: I, I saw your name on that today because a, a friend and colleague of ours is applying to attend.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: uh, and yeah. I should say that where I first met Dirk was uh, it was the Hyman Minsky Summer Seminar. Oh, yes. In, in those was it? days in 2012, oh. in the very same place, the Levy Institute at Bard College, yeah. beautiful annandale on hudson anyone who ever gets the chance to go and visit uh, they should do i think you're presenting uh, um uh, uh, over the net are you or are you actually going no, i
2: will be that person
1: oh wow well, that's absolutely yeah. marvelous yeah. Um, it's, to go. it's yeah. probably too late to apply now i guess all the places are, are taken yeah. up but if there's it's anybody watching who, who's going to go it's a fantastic experience when dirk uh, and i were there we heard then from stephanie kelton randy ray matt Forstutter, Fadel kaboo pavlina Cherneva, scott forweiler as well as uh, a, a variety of uh, of leading post keynesians and others who wouldn't use the modern monetary theory label for themselves it was a it was a wonderful uh, experience i still I, I i very much remember chatting to dirk and uh, uh, talking about the overlap or that there ought to be an overlap between uh, um, uh, post Keynesian economics and, uh, uh, and behavioral economics. And you were going to launch a web page with uh, what was it going to be called? I've, I've got endogenous monkey. <laughs> yeah, that,
2: right. that
1: was what you were going to call it. Yeah, <laughs> that was
2: on. the human behavior associated with, with um, the endogenous money creation. Yeah, and we will be endogenous monkeys.
1: That's
2: <laughs> it. Biologically, we are monkeys. <laughs> we'll anyway, be, but anyway,
1: yeah. If you're going, you're in for a, a great treat um, uh, with all the uh, amazing presenters and Bill Mitchell as well uh, this mm-hmm. year, and Dirk, of course. And if there is anybody watching now, please make a point of going and saying hello to Dirk uh, when you're at the Levy Institute. And thanks again, Dirk, for being with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Gabby. Thank, Thank you, Stephen. Thanks. See ya. Thanks again. All that's
3: right.